Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what is up, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today. Very special episode, episode 165. I have a special guest. He's coming all the way from Australia. Daniel Silk, the host of Life Changes You. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. Look, thank you for having me. It's great we've connected and it's uh, really good to be here on your podcast and have a chat with you. Uh, I, I just wanted to say to the listeners that I just did a podcast with you before and I found it so inspiring and enlightening as to the changes in your life. And it was just, it was amazing. Well, you know what, this afternoon I was kind of in a funk and I didn't have that much energy. And then, you know, maybe worrying a little bit about how our podcast was going to go and but now, like, I feel like I just had a ton of caffeine. And that's what I love about podcasts. So that's what I love about talking with someone else and having that kind of connection, like a real connection with several of the guests that I've had on my show, or I've been on their shows. Like some of those people are like, man, we're probably going to be friends for a really long time. And maybe we won't see each other that often, but there's yeah. something there because we know something about each other. I had the pleasure of being on your show. I hope everyone goes checks that out. You know, it's always nice talking about me, but now I get to find out about you. I was drawn to your show because of your message, which is what a positive message it is. So what I wanted to know is like, why did you start your podcast? If you could talk about that, why you started in the first place, maybe some of the hesitation on whether or not you should even continue and what you have gotten out of it. Okay, so what happened was I just started a business with a friend of mine, teaching people with an intellectual disability and all mental health issues how to communicate better. And I think after about two months of doing that, I thought, why don't I do a podcast? I'm listening to all these podcasts, all these inspirational people who are talking about mental health, psychology, how to have a more positive outlook in your life. And I thought, look, I can do that. Back in when I was in my 20s, I did, I think it's called public radio, which is where you get donations to be on radio. And I did that for a couple of years, interviewed a few international acts and stuff. And I thought, look, I can do it because, you know, I've got that background. And what I wanted to do was talk to, so the reason it's called Life Changes You is it's about ordinary everyday people and how their lives have changed from when they were children to where they are now, what they've gone through, how that's affected them. The changes in life, you know, good and bad, and I've had some bad ones. I lost my sister when I was in my mid-30s to cancer. I just lost my dad uh, last year. And all the, and I got fibromyalgia. So all these changes are things that I thought would be interesting to people. Although when I first started, I didn't always talk about myself. It was about the guests. And it was when I started opening up and telling people about my story that I realised that the audience were connecting more because they understood who I was and why I was here and what my... I guess they call it a mission statement in business. I, I don't usually use that, but I guess that was my mission to enlighten people as to other people's lives, good or bad, <clears throat> and to be able to connect with people where it wasn't a doctor telling them there was something wrong with them or them. It might be a mum that listens to the podcast and hears a story about something and goes, oh, actually, I think that's my son or my daughter or uh, my sister has got a problem or my mum has got a problem or the person I work with, you know, maybe they should listen to this podcast. So, and I like it to be very conversationalist where I don't generally have a lot of questions. I write down a few bits and pieces as I'm talking because I want it to come across as like we're sitting having a cup of coffee chatting and then it's the people around us that are listening in and hearing what we're talking about and going, oh, actually, that resonates with me or that inspired me or, oh, actually, I, I don't know about that. Did that happen to me? And if it did, was it the same as that guy? You know, to get people to think and not be so just caught up in their own world to hear other people's stories. And I've covered hundreds of different people. I mean, you were just saying, I think this is 167 episode. Uh, 65, yeah. 65, and I'm up to, I think, 164 now. So oh, we're about the same longevity as well because I'm coming up three years in November. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people have said to me, why do you continue it? I continue it because there are always new, interesting people that come forward. And like our connection this week, it's all about getting those stories out and also finding stories that aren't generally spoken about. And one in particular was I had a guest on and we spoke about youth suicide. And I think it's really important to highlight this suicide for any age, 
However, on my social media, I think I lost about two to 5,000 followers in a few days after that podcast went out. And that's okay because, you know, on social media, all my stuff is positive and happy. And But then when I promote what episode is coming up and it said youth suicide with so-and-so, you know, youth suicide is prevalent and we need to work out ways of how we can stop it or how we can work with it to -hmm. slow it down. People won't. And that's the same with a few others, like uh, one on uh, sexual abuse of children. Huge person in America from, I can't remember their name, but, you know, like half a million followers, a child, child, uh, child rescue coalition, fantastic interview. And it was something that I really like to talk about more with people because we need to protect children and that hardly got any listens. And I think it's because in our brains, we don't really want to accept that that sort of thing is happening. Yeah, and that's yeah. okay. You know, you can do the podcast and then if people listen, they listen. And if they don't, that's up to them. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't affect you, I guess it's something you don't want to listen to. But it could be that you're the one not listening because maybe in the back of your head you think, oh, maybe that's happening to someone I know mm-hmm. and you don't actually want that reality. Yeah, no, I think suicide is one of the things that oh, I we, we talked about it on yours a little bit, but that I struggled with for a very, very long time where I... You know, I remember looking at myself in the mirror as probably, I don't know, 10, 12, you know, with razor blades and thinking about it and just never able to do it. I lost a really good friend when, after graduating from Brown and his suicide, even though I hadn't seen him in over a year, like that stayed with me for years and years and years until I wrote about it and I broke down and I realized just how much it had really impacted me. And that, and I was just a friend, you know, that was impacted. Like imagine his family and all the, what it does. So yeah, talking about those things are uh, very serious. Thank whatever spiritual guide you follow, anyone follows, because look at what you're doing now. And Mm -hmm. what a waste, not a waste, but wouldn't that have been terrible to lose what you're doing now and putting out into the community because we're all here like someone said to me oh I guess you do it because you're famous and I go no I do it because I want mental health messages put out there and I want people to understand more that you know if you can't afford to see a counsellor or a psychologist or you don't want to go because you're embarrassed you can listen to podcasts not just mine anybody's podcast and you'll get little bits of information that you can then go and have a look on the internet and it might make you feel more confident about seeing a therapist mm-hmm. uh, and then you can work through those issues so anyone who's doing a podcast on mental health psychology those sort of things it's brilliant because we're all giving up our time to help educate people and help people see things in a different way that's awesome. Now, as a, well, going back to early, how long did it take you to start embracing and, and to start sharing yourself? Like, why do you think you weren't doing that from the start? Did you think that you weren't important, that people wouldn't care about your story? Did you think these other people, your guests were more important? How long did it take for that? And, and like, was it something that you were conscious of? In the beginning, when I first started, anyone who listens to the podcast would no, I'm male. But on social media, I never said whether I was male or female, how old I was, because I actually didn't want it to be a prejudice to people joining and finding out more. And I thought, you know, females might go out to male, males might go out to female, you know, so I just wanted it to be open to everybody. So non-gender specific, which we are in the world of now. But that wasn't my what why I was doing. I just didn't want people to have their judgments brought forward on what I was doing. When I first started doing the podcast, it was about talking to different people and finding out bits about their lives. And the first 10, maybe 15 podcasts were all friends. They had some background somewhere where I said, look, come on, because I need guests. And until I get guests, I'm not going to get anyone else. Um, And I think, yeah, it was about six months before I started sharing my own personal values and what had happened to me because yes for one I wanted the guests to be at the forefront of what we were talking about but then as I started listening to people's stories as we were talking I started realizing that parts of things that had happened to me were relevant to the conversation we were having and that's where I say to you I like it to be more of a conversation like we're both sitting down having a coffee together because those things just automatically come out it's your authentic self it's not like oh god what am I going to say I'm not going to say this and so then I started realizing that talking about fibromyalgia. And when I started talking about that, I didn't realize what an impact that would have because fibromyalgia is generally looked on as a female illness. 
And when males realised that I had fibromyalgia, I wasn't in bed. I wasn't, I hadn't given up work. I still had a purpose. They were like, well, how, how do you do this? Because, and people can take whatever medications they need to take. I take a couple of different ones, but I found that a lot of the ones that they were giving me in the beginning were just knocking me sideways, like anti-anxiety, anti-depression. And yes, they do work for certain people with fibromyalgia. For me, they just closed my brain down and I couldn't be like that because I just needed to be able to still work. And it took me a good six, no, 12 weeks to be able to get from being bedridden to be able to get up. And I use this story a lot, vacuum the lounge room floor. And it took me a whole day to vacuum a small lounge room floor because I did a quarter, then I had to have a sleep, then I did another quarter. But I knew if I didn't start setting myself small challenges, that was going to be my life. It was going to be in bed every day, not working. And I went back to work part-time. And then when I was working part-time, I started studying my diploma in counselling and then went on to my Bachelor of Counselling. And people were saying to me, oh, you shouldn't be doing that because you get too tired. And I thought, if I get too tired, I've already got chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. So I'm tired anyway. So I just kept pushing through and pushing through. And look, up until 2017, because I think I was diagnosed around 2010, I had a pretty easy run of fibro because of the way I set myself up. And then I had about two years where I couldn't get work because everyone said I was overqualified and I was really suffering with fibromyalgia. So I'd have like three or four days where I had to be in bed and then maybe two or three days where I felt okay. And then I might have a month where I felt okay and then a month, six weeks where I felt really ill again. And so during that time, I did start to doubt myself and I had to rethink what I'd learned in my counselling that if I let this take over me, this is where I am. If I start doing small positive things, that's where I can go. So it's all about measuring out, I guess, what you think you're capable of and what you need to do. So I put a lot of needs in my plan of what I needed to accomplish. And they weren't big things. They were things like cleaning the lounge room, making sure I did my washing each week and change my bedding. And, you know, but they're things that with fibromyalgia, you don't usually think about doing because you're too tired or you just think, I can't do it. So then 2019, when I started this business and I started the podcast, I was back on a roll and I started to feel really good about who I was, where I was. And even though I had an illness and you have pain every day, you can get used to that. But you can't, I couldn't get used to the fact that I wouldn't be doing anything like not working, not podcasting. I'm also a guardian to two young men in their 30s who have got an intellectual disability. So I go to a lot of meetings for them and make sure that they have a voice. I help out my mum who's 82 with Parkinson's. So my life now is the busiest it's probably ever been. But the adrenaline that I run on is good to keep me going to where I want to go to. Was that the question you asked or did I just go off on a wild tangent? I was following it. I, I enjoyed it. You did an awesome job with it. Have you always been a caretaker? Have you been the person to, like even, even as a kid or a teenager or whatever, have, have you been a person that has cared for others and like wanted to listen, wanted to share, wanted to help? Yeah, look, when I was, I grew up in England, we moved here when I was 11. And my mum said, and I can remember it, in the street we lived in, I don't think it's exactly like it was back then. But in the 70s, you knew everybody in your street. And so I would go down and visit the old people, like they would give me a few sweets or lollies for visiting them, but I'd go and sit with them for 10, 15 minutes and have a chat. And when my when I was off sick from school, my mum would go over to a neighbour and say, can Dan stay with you for the day because I've got to go to work. And so it was a real sense of community. So I, I spoke to people young, old, there was a couple of peop uh, people with disability in the church group that I went to Sunday school at. I'm not a big church believer now, but my parents sent me to that. And I think that actually helped me get a good grasp of communication and connecting with different varieties of people, old, young, disabled, different nationalities, you know. So that was really, that was great. You know, it really opened up my world to all different people. Awesome. So yes, always. And then when I was, well, I left school at 15 because I hated school. I was bullied all the time. And so I went and worked for my dad, who was a builder and a landscaper. And I worked with him till I was 19. And then we built a house. Mum and dad went overseas to England for a holiday for nine weeks. And a friend of theirs said, do you want to come and work at this institution with disabled people? Once I started there, my life changed. I just loved helping people. 
That's awesome. How difficult would you say that job is? Because it seems like there would be probably lots of times where you see that you are making a difference, but I'm sure there's also a lot of difficulty in it as well. I know what you mean. Like, you know, because working in disability, it's not all joy. Mm-hmm. It's not all people finding out new things about themselves. In in the in the business I have now, yeah, they're finding things out, finding their self-confidence, finding their compassion. You know, I've seen some really big steps in the guys that come here and, you know, some of them have got mental health issues and their parents say, oh, my God, at home, they're completely different. And they go, how do you get them to be so calm? And I go, it's just the way we work with people here. But back in the day when I first started in the institution, there were people there with really severe behavioural issues. And, you know, you came home from days there where you were just completely drained. Like, Mm -hmm. what can I do? Because everything everybody tried to do, and I was working with three other people, you couldn't get around that behaviour. Now, things have moved on in those 25 years. We have better medications and we also have better behavioural support from outside people, psychologists and psychiatrists and behavioural specialists. Um, But you're still going to find people who... I guess if you've got an intellectual impairment, you are more behind everybody else because your learning is slower. But then also whatever's happened to you in the past, it's really hard for someone to work with that person to find out what has been bad in their life, especially if they don't speak or they have very small communication or they can't express what happened to them. You know, uh, this is just a story that happened in COVID that I found out about. But during COVID, it was an opportunity for some people to sexually molest people with disability because there wasn't so many people working because we were all in lockdown, so it was minimum staffing. And I hadn't even thought of that because we stayed open because we're mental health and intellectual disability. But to think that someone can take that opportunity when you've got a very vulnerable person who doesn't understand why they can't go out to the movies or can't go to their day program and you choose to sexually molest them and there was also an increase in self-harm with people with disability because they didn't understand what was happening and they're trying to get well I don't even know if they're trying to get their head around they just want to know why they can't go out the front door right you know so there are those stories in my job, not here, but you hear of them and you wonder why in 2022 these sort of things are still happening because we hear about it happening in the asylums and the institutions back in the 50s, 60s. But nowadays, look, I guess a predator is a predator, aren't they? They're going to take an opportunity wherever they can take it. Yeah, and one of the reasons I asked that was because when I worked, and again, I didn't work for very long in the prison system or juvenile probation but especially in juvenile probation, I wanted to make a difference. It seemed like you'd make a difference with a kid and then you see him two weeks later or, you know, he just does something terrible. But now let's go super positive. Let's go to the podcast. Has it changed your life? What have you gotten personally from it? Like, do you think you would, would you want to have those conversations? Even if no one was listening, would you still have those conversations with lots of your guests? Absolutely. <clears throat> Every person I speak to, I find something else out about myself. And it doesn't have to be anything mind-blowing that the person says, but you hear something in a story and you go, oh, actually, that's me. Or actually, I should change myself a little bit more like that. I was talking to someone the other day. We were talking about the importance of language and about being a people pleaser. And I did a podcast with someone else recently and it worked out I am a people pleaser, which probably I didn't want to admit I was. But it was about how, you know, sometimes you have a conversation with someone on the phone and the conversation is very one-sided and then at the end they say, okay, goodbye, and you put the phone down and you go, oh, well, I didn't even say anything that I wanted to say. And this person pointed out, well, actually, Dan, you need to actually say what your need is or what your want is or what you need to talk about. And I guess I've got so used to when I talk to people on the phone, if I don't get a chance to say something, it's just, okay, goodbye. But then I dwell on it afterwards and I go, oh, I didn't even get to say what I wanted to say. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's... uh... Learning for me from doing these podcasts, so many different subjects, so many different people, so many 
different things that they want to talk about or what I've really liked as well is some people that I speak to I did one recently with someone who uh, didn't know who her father was growing up thought the stepfather was her father uh, and didn't meet her father until she was 19 but wasn't allowed to tell him that she was his daughter and she'd also been molested by the stepdad and so we had a, a conversation and she told me all about her life and what had happened to her. And then I asked her two questions about one of them was, how was it then living with the stepfather? Because she hadn't told her mum what had happened to her. How was it living with, I guess, the perpetrator in the same house after that had happened? And after we finished the podcast, she said, do you know what? She said, I've only ever told people what have ha what's happened and not many people have asked me questions. She said, but those two questions you asked me really made me think about what had happened and made me see things in a different way. And when you hear things like that, you realise how important these conversations are. It was important to me for me to understand what had happened to her and for the audience to understand. And I'm not someone who goes into all the gory details of, oh, well, what happened? But just to ask what it was like to live with your perpetrator because I'd done another one last year with a doctor who has worked in child support law enforcement all these different things and growing up she lived next door like her brother was in the room next door and her talking about the fear of being at home knowing her brother was next door and when he might come in and sexually abuse her again yeah. And, you know, it gives us a greater understanding of how someone feels to be sexually abused as a child, how they cope in life. And she was very resilient, like she's gone on and helped lots of people. But those sort of conversations are really important. Those are the important conversations. I was thinking, like, oftentimes my mother-in-law, sometimes my wife, other people will say, oh, you're so good at listening. You should be a counselor. You should be a therapist. I was like... I don't want to reach one person. Like I want to reach a bunch of people. And that's what you're doing with the podcast, which is awesome. Can I just say to you there that by doing a certificate or a diploma, it just gives you a deeper understanding. And so, it, and about yourself, I learned mm. so much about myself from doing my diploma. Before that, everything was black and white. No, no two ways about it. It was yes or no. And I couldn't see that there was any other way. And then the mentor I was working with said, you realise how many shades of grey are between black and white? And I go, oh, 10. And she goes, it could be a million. And I'm like, okay. She said, so stop thinking it's just yes or no. There are so many different answers in between yes or no that you can take and are opportunities. They might work out bad for you, but don't just think yes or no. You've got to give things a try. And once I got that in my head, I was like, wow, yeah, I do see things so black and white. And now I don't anymore. I see that there's opportunities in lots of things and lots of conversations. We have great opportunities for growth for me, for growth for you. And for the people who are listening. That's awesome. How is mental health treated in Australia? Is it is it just as much of a stigma? Is it is do people not get help like they should? Because that's definitely how it is in the US. That's that's how I feel it is here. You know, there's definitely a big stigma. You know, most people don't want to they wouldn't admit going and getting therapy if they did go and get it. Is it similar in Australia? Do people not now, want to talk I about it? I was speaking to someone recently who said, and it wasn't on a podcast, <clears throat> but they were saying that the good thing about America is people are open to going to a therapist and they'll talk to their friends that they went to their therapist and talked about this. And I always thought that was really good. I, I, I found it a bit weird that nearly everybody had a therapist, but maybe that's not, not, not true. Here it's, it's still, I think, a bit taboo. And I was hoping with COVID, with anxiety, depression, those sort of things, I thought we would open up a lot more. I, I think it still goes back to maybe the 70s and 80s where people were scared to say they had some mental health issue because their friends would laugh at them or feel that they weren't up to what they were doing. You know, I, I think the last 10 years have been a real big shift in employment for people who have mental health issues uh, in a positive way. However, sometimes I feel that it's a little bit like um, it's a policy they have to have, but they don't really want someone with a mental health issue. Here, for instance, for 14 to 25-year-olds, we have, we have an organisation called Headspace, 
and it's for anyone who's suffering mental health issues, they can go and have free assessment for mental health. However, since it's opened, it's become backlogged because they only take now the people who are suicidal or who aren't really managing. So if you were to ring up and say, I've got anxiety, I can't go out of the house, I can't do this, blah, 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 you might be, you know, I don't know where, but say number 100 wow. in the queue because you're not as urgent as someone who's suicidal, which is fair enough. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, with COVID, it's brought a lot more mental health issues. And the more services we can have, the more we can help people, because if we can work on mental health first, then we don't get the physical health issues. Because with mental health, you start getting sick, you start getting depressed, you don't want to go out, you stop looking after how you look, you don't eat properly, you don't sleep properly, then we have physical symptoms as well as the mental health issues. Whereas if we can get into the mental health issue really quickly, we can stop that sort of progression. We do have, if you want to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, you can have what's called a mental health plan drawn up by your doctor, GP. And that gives you six sessions at a reduced cost. So say it was $200 to see the psychologist, it might cost you $30 to $50 out of pocket, which is still out of reach for a lot of people. Right. So you have to be, I would say, chronically ill with mental health to be able to wow. get it free. And I, was, I heard a story the other day that there was a child who was having a really bad day. They weren't threatening suicide, but they had to wait two, nearly two days, so about 40 hours for a CAT team to arrive, which is a crisis intervention team. And by then, luckily, they had been able to work through what was going wrong and they calmed down. But, you know, that's not the case for every person, is it? And if you're calling right. a crisis intervention team, 40 hours is a long time to wait. Half an hour is a long time to wait, especially if you're a family or a friend trying to help this person and you don't know what to do. Waiting 40 hours would feel like a lifetime. One thing that we can really do is to open up the dialogue and talk about suicide and not make it such a taboo subject. If people were talking more openly about suicide and depression and anxiety and, you know, uh, being more compassionate and open and kind about talking about these things. This is one of the things I do on my social media is I say, um, I've used it for three years. I can't remember what it is now. Normalise, don't stigmatise. I'm not a great believer in normalization because I don't think any of us are normal but we need to normalize the dialogue and talking about mental health and suicide and when it's out in the open and it's something that everybody talks about we no longer fear it but at the moment everybody is scared and I think with parents they might be too scared to ask their child are you thinking of suicide are you are you having a hard time with mental health because they're not prepared for what might come back and it's the same as I said to you about the uh, podcast I did on child predators. You know, we don't really want to go there because we don't know what we're going to unravel. And once it's unraveled, how do we then deal with it? Do we go into, oh, my God, quickly, I've got to get a cat team here? Or do we go, look, do you want to speak to a psychologist or a counsellor? Or do we go, do you want to talk to me about it? So there's lots of things we can do, but it's more about opening up the communication so that the, your children, uh, whether they're 5, 10, 20, 30, feel like they can turn around and talk to you and say, hey, mum, hey, dad, you know, I'm having a really bad time. Because I think with suicide, a lot of the problems that, compact suicide are things that can be worked out and they might not be good things it might be like you've got yourself in a shitload of trouble with money and you owe a hundred thousand dollars well you can go bankrupt it's not the end of the world you can get a loan your parents might be able to help you there are ways around these things rather than going suicide's my only option and when we look at those sort of things it's like i said before with the black and white thinking it's not I have to suicide because this is happening. There's all those greys in the middle where you can go, actually, yeah, I can get a bank loan. I can go bankrupt. I can ask support from my family. You know, so there are options that we need to share and we need to say, look, you know, that's not your only option. There are a lot of other options in between if we talk about it. 
And so encourage your kids, say, you know, you and you don't even have to ask your child, you know, are you suicidal? You can say, hey, look, I was watching a show on TV today and they were talking about suicide in children. Are you okay? You know, is everything good at school? And they might go, yeah, fine, brilliant. Or they might go, no, I've actually been feeling a bit like I'm bullied. When I was 13, 14, 15, I wasn't, I wasn't the person who listened at my school. It was all heavy metal and rock and I liked alternative music. So I didn't fit in and I was bullied. And, you know, Thinking back, there were probably times where I thought, I don't want to be here because it's really hard to deal with when you've got five, ten boys following you around, telling you you're an idiot, you don't fit in, why do you dress like that, why do you like that music? But when you come out of school, and this is why I left school at 15, because I I couldn't handle the bullying anymore, but this is another thing I, I like to say to people, that even when you leave school at 15, it doesn't mean that's the end of your life because you can go on and study again. You can return to study. You can find a job you like and work your way up. It's not if you leave school, that's it, and you're an idiot, you can do so many more things. You can work in a shop the rest of your life and be happy. There's mm-hmm. so many things you can do, but we need to open up the dialogue and not make suicide taboo and get rid of the stigma around mental health. In America, and I'm sure you saw it, but just all the all the shootings we've been having, you know, and that's something I've had to talk with my kids about. I mean, I talk, we're very, very open with our kids. We talk about stuff all the time. I've my daughter had dealt with anxiety and just different things, but yeah, with the shooting, I, I, that's something I think you know. I encourage parents to talk with their kids to let to find out whether or not they're scared or you know what kind of emotions, because that is a lot of that's a lot of trauma, a lot of fear. I don't know. I have a hard time. And it's one of those things we were talking earlier about not wanting to see the sexual abuse, not wanting to, you know, turn into tune into those things with all the news. Like, I don't want to see pictures of little kids that just got murdered and everything else. I want to just pretend it didn't even happen, but I need to talk with my kids and make sure that they're doing okay. And how are they processing it and, and all of that. And, and look, I think in that situation as well, <clears throat> it's, it's, I mean, FBI's and that have their profiles of what a person is like. But I think we're finding more and more as we move forward that a lot of those profiles don't actually fit the child who's just shot people at school. There's someone who you, the teachers say, oh, was academically great, had friends, you know, something else has triggered them. And we need to, we need to be looking at what we can put in as a resource into schools to catch those people who aren't the ones that fit the profile because it could just be they woke up in the morning and their dad yelled at them or something went wrong it could be a video game they lost that and people laughed at them and they're like well I'm that's not me I'm going to show you so we need to be across a lot of different things and it's not easily explained in our podcast it's not easily explained by governments but Uh, We need to work towards finding new solutions that can continue us on into the future where anxiety and depression become normalised and that people don't fear about speaking about them to their friends as well. Like I, I was saying on a podcast recently, what I think would be really great is if someone went to see a psychologist and they had some anxiety, depression or uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, and then the psychologist said to them, would you mind if I had your mum and dad come in and we have a chat? Or would you mind if I chatted to them? Or, you know, so that you can educate the other people in the family. Because in the family, I think that's where it starts first. And if you get that feedback where there's no problem, let's just work through this. Mm-hmm. It's all good. We can do this. And then you'll be more likely to talk to your friends and family, uh, friends and other people outside about what's going on because we've all been brought up on the stereotypical image of a schizophrenic or bipolar or someone with mental health issue is the mass murderer the serial killer and in reality it's not so we need to move past those and we need to try and get all families I think it would be great if the school had an evening where families were invited to come and they went through this is what anxiety is like these are the different types and go through some mental health issues so that then the whole family is sitting there and then they go home and they talk about it with their kids. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a conversation that started that maybe they didn't want to start. Yeah. No, I think, you know, I think so many people are afraid to bring stuff up, but yeah, I'm very open because I'm like, look, this is what I have dealt with. This is what your mother has dealt with. These are things we still struggle with. This is how we, you know, these are the things I use to, deal with it it just it just shows them like okay it, it it's 
it could be normal. It's part of life. If I start feeling like this, I shouldn't feel ashamed. I shouldn't feel, you know, it's just something. It, it's my brain health. And right now it's not optimal, but it could get, you know, it's just a matter of figuring it out what you need, whether it's changing something with the family dynamics, whether it's changing something that you're eating that's causing inflammation, whatever it is. Yeah. And so. look, when, when we recorded the podcast for my show, your vulnerability is something that's brilliant because men who have similar issues to what you've had, whether it's anger, hormone imbalance, you know, or smoking some drugs, they'll hear your, your, how open you are and they'll realize that change can happen. It's when you don't hear people like you speaking that people just go, oh, well, it's just me or it's me and my mates that do this and we're okay together, even though you're not and you know you're not. But hearing someone like you speak about you had anger issues and you worked through that and then you had some hypnotherapy and all these different things you had to then when you signed off from the podcast, when we finished the podcast and you left, I was going to get something to eat before we recorded this. And you said, I'm going to go and love my family. And I was like, wow, that is just a brilliant thing to say. And it shows how far you've come through your change and transition with where you were to where you are now with your mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And is and a lot of a lot of choices too. Even even just that about the family. I had to I had to change the way I was thinking about work and putting work in front of them. And uh, yeah, so it's just it's, I think I think so much of it, it all it comes down to just being honest, taking an honest look at yourself, right? I mean, otherwise, if you're not honest with yourself, you're not gonna be honest with a therapist. A therapist won't be able to help you. You know, you're not gonna be honest with your doctor if you're not honest with yourself. So I think that is so huge and just not being ashamed of it. Just like, yeah, this is just owning it. Like this is, this is who I am and I don't like this, this and this. So is there someone that can help me with that? And what you're saying is quite right. Cause with therapists, it's okay to say I'm seeing a therapist, but you have to go in and take your mask off and tell them exactly how it is. Cause you can come out and say, the oh, therapist yeah. rubbish, they didn't help me, but unless, cause some people want to go in and say, Oh, well, this is bad. And this is bad. But the real three bad things are the things you don't want to talk about. Cause you don't really want to admit to yourself that that's what's happening. But once you admit those and open them up, then you start working through them and you go, actually, they're not bad things. They're just things I've been hiding. And mm -hmm. we all have that 5% in us that only we know about. And then I think it's 25% that we share with family and friends. And then the rest of it is what everybody knows, you know, but that little 5%, if you keep that locked away in here, you're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that during therapy too, especially the early sessions. I was like, Man, I can just say whatever. I know exactly what to say. I can, I could, I could make this conversation go however I want. And but I was like, I would just be cheating myself. Like it wouldn't help. And there were definitely some things I didn't, I did not share with them. You know, I just didn't bring up those things. I kept those, but I did go pretty deep. And maybe down the road, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and I'll examine those other little but things I didn't share. What you've learned now from those sessions, you can deal with that other bit yourself anyway because it's about learning and knowing what's going on in your mind. And then gradually you break those things down yourself. That's cool. And that's, that's an awesome way to think about it. And, and that's kind of how I'm feeling now. It's like, okay, now I have the capability to deal with some stuff. And like yesterday I, I was triggered and I had like a violent outburst. I was ashamed at how angry I got, but then I was proud of myself because I was able to catch myself. When I went through the outburst, I was like, I just wanted to destroy stuff and, I was just so angry. And two hours later, you know, everything's fine. Life's beautiful. Like I'm over that. I, I, I got defensive. I, I lost my temper. It's like, okay, I, I can't do that. I got to watch out for those triggers. Next time this happens, I need to say, Hey, I'm going to go over here, you know? And so I think it's just important to and how different is that for you now than what say it was five years ago? Oh, I wouldn't have got over it. I would have, um, if I didn't go through everything that I've gone through, there is no way I would have got through the pandemic. I would have been divorced for sure, dead or, or in prison, like some, something bad would have happened. Like it, it wouldn't have been good. And I, I was just going down a really bad path. I think in looking at my brain patterns and everything else is like, okay, I kind of get it. But yeah, that's why I love, that's why I love sharing this message after experiencing, knowing what I was dealing with before. Cause I didn't realize I was having depression. I didn't realize I was having anxiety. I didn't realize my anger was so bad. I didn't realize Oh, that was just who I was. That was my normal. But after realizing, it's like, oh man, I had all that stuff. It's like I don't want anyone else dealing with that. And and I want people that are dealing with that to be able to know that 
oh yeah, they could get happy and they could get better. And I used to be just so miserable and so negative about everything. My, my friends that when they talk to me now, they just make jokes about, you know, now you're this hippie and this and that. And, but I'm happy and I'm grateful. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be where I'm at right now. Well, what I wanted to say is if you look at your timeline, then <clears throat> from where you were feeling really shitty about your life and you didn't like it and stuff like that. And then you went to therapy and working on yourself and opening up to new ideas and working through issues of your own. And now you've gone to teaching people how to do that. So isn't that a great timeline? You know, you've given yourself the space to come to terms with what's going on in your life and to work through it. And now you're actually on things like this, actually speaking to people and saying, well, this is what I went through and I was there. So you can be there too. It's not like your life has to stay there. You just need to work on it a bit and then come out the other end and then you can start talking to people about it because you're very open and honest. There's not a lot of men who would come on and speak about all the things you spoke about and show people. And as you just said now, being happy. Yeah. And that was one of the great lessons I learned from my brother. He told me, cause I was, I think I really wanted to change people's minds. I was real passionate about something, but I was really angry about it too. He's like, he's like the way to change people is to be happy. He's like, Cause then they're going to want to know why you're happy. Everyone wants happiness. If they see that you're happy, they're going to be like, well, what's that dude doing to be happy? So yeah, I think that. Look, uh, that's so, something I learned okay. in counseling is if you want change with someone in a dis with a disability, model the behavior. And when they see what you're doing, it's almost like when you're a child, you copy what people do because that gets you praise or happiness or feeling good about yourself. And so you're modeling the behavior of, what you are now and other people are going hey shit how did he get to there i remember him back 20 years ago and he wasn't like that but now look at him you know no yeah. yeah, super cool man thank you so much for being on i i appreciate this thank you for having me on yours thank you for being on mine where can people uh find your podcast so it's life changes you it's on spotify apple uh google any of i'm also on uh instagram where i've got a big following so there's always updates on there which is life underscore changes you underscore podcast i'm on twitter and facebook but they're not as big uh instagram there's I don't even want to say how many. There's okay. a lot of people that follow me there. So if you want to go there, there's my link tree, links to all the podcasts, to the website, if you want to email me. Yeah. Perfect. I will put that down below. But Daniel, thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate this. This has been awesome. I'm motivated. I'm going to reach out to the Australian Football League and try to share my message as well. I appreciate you suggesting that. You've been an amazing guest. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. Paying the price. Six months ago, I hit a pretty hard depression. Part of it was physical. Not being able to train jiu-jitsu or practice yoga due to neck, back, and shoulder issues. The other part was mental. The research for my book on traumatic brain injuries, TBI, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, weighing me down. I couldn't stop thinking about Junior Seau and Andre Waters killing themselves. Aaron Hernandez and his ravaged brain, convicted of the murder of a friend. I worried about Gary Goodridge and my numerous MMA friends dealing with varying degrees of brain damage. My thoughts would often turn to a former boxing opponent and sparring partner whose speech had become difficult to understand, his emotions a mess. I was burdened with the knowledge that a Brown University teammate who'd spent the last six years dealing with CTE symptoms only had a short time to live, thanks to the combination of neurodegenerative disease and acute myeloid leukemia. This man, who'd been told he had the frontal lobe of a 75-year-old, rattled off stories about myself that I can't recollect. My time at Brown, and much of my life a messy blur. I told myself to get over it. I was making this into something bigger than it needed to be. I hadn't had nearly the amount of head trauma many NFL players had. Except for excessive caffeine and cannabis use, I've led a healthy lifestyle over the last decade. And if my brain was deteriorating further, surely I'd be aware of it. But I couldn't deny that the feeling was back. The one I'd kept at bay through yoga, jujitsu, cognitive therapy, meditation, cold therapy, alcohol, and psychedelics. That dark, scary feeling. I'd had since I was ten, if not younger.
the mixture of rage and depression, didn't compute. It used to, for the explosive child. The troubled teenager, the failed fighter, the loser who never did a damn thing with his degree. But that was another life. My life was beautiful now. With a wonderful wife and two incredible children, we were set financially and everyone was healthy. I had close friends. A good support system was publishing books at a good pace and had found a balance between family and writing. The story I'd been telling myself was that I'd lucked out and was blessed with a resilient brain. All of the concussions and knockouts free of any lasting effects. Anyone that's read my fiction knows I'm a doom and gloom kind of guy, so maybe I'm just hardwired to focus on the negative. And if all those brain injuries did cause problems, surely I'd gotten past them by now. Especially with the treatment protocol I was on. But still, I had to consider the symptoms. I opened my laptop and started a new document. Realizing that if I didn't write it down, I'd forget all about it or rationalize it away. Impulsive behavior. Guilty. Whether it's gambling, video games, or drugs, I can be an addict. Memory loss. I can't tell you the number of times friends have shown me photos of events to prove that I was there. At a recent party, three different people laughed somewhat uncomfortably when I introduced myself to them, even though we'd been acquaintances for years. Difficulty planning and carrying out tasks, it can take me days to respond to emails. The littlest things are written down in hopes I'll one day do them. Substance abuse. 32 years of cannabis and counting, along with plenty of experimentation. Emotional instability. It's not all the time. Usually I'm a fairly happy, even sweet guy. But it doesn't take a whole lot to rock the ship. One crappy night of sleep and my emotions are all over the place. I don't respond well to confrontation. Depression or apathy. I never would have considered myself depressed until a year ago. But that's just due to the stigma behind the word. There's no denying, that's what I'm experiencing. Suicidal thoughts or behavior. I struggled with this most of my life. Spending too many of my college nights with a gun in my mouth. It's not something I'd ever do now that I have kids. And the urge has been dormant for the past decade. But even a trace of that self-destructiveness is something I need to be aware of. So, regardless of the source of damage, there's something wrong with me. Whether it was from a TBI, CTE, substance abuse, childhood scars, or good old genetics, my brain is not in a good place. That thought was depressing. But I'd written it down. Given a voice to my fear. I felt a little better about it the following day, but couldn't read what I'd written without breaking into tears. Then, after an honest and loving talk with my wife, Something shifted and I wrote three more lines that changed everything for me. But it's all good. I'm going to fix it. I have to. Fixing it is what I've been attempting to do since 2013, when a close friend urged me to research brain damage. He'd been photographing segments of my journey to 100 MMA gyms across the country and was having a hard time watching me get my ass kicked by athletes half my age and with three times my talent. The more I read up on TBIs, the more I feared I had really screwed up. I was a reckless kid. Experiencing my first serious concussion when I smacked my head on a schoolyard sprinkler at age six or seven. It's impossible to count how many I'd had since, but there had been plenty. In seven years of high school and college football, I'd lost consciousness six times. On top of that, I'd had constant trauma playing defensive line like a ram, always striking helmet to helmet. While attempting an MMA career, I was knocked out twice. On another two occasions, my brain was rattled so badly that I completely lost at least 15 minutes of time. And there was a ridiculous number of occasions where I left the gym with a moderate concussion. While attempting a boxing career, I constantly slurred my words and reversed their order. Between boxing and MMA, I had 14 professional matches and a losing record. A sure sign I'd taken more damage than I had dealt. Had a few more motorcycle accidents and a 70-mile-per-hour collision, and it is amazing I can write my own name, let alone a novel. 
The cumulative brain trauma made me a prime candidate for dementia and was likely responsible for my spotty memory. All the aforementioned damage control occurred almost a decade before the last stretch of unnecessary blows to the head, causing at least five more concussions. My head slamming off the mat at Team Quest, nearly being knocked out at Syndicate MMA, a nasty head kick at Alliance MMA, and brutal beatings by Fabricio Verdum and Henato Babalu at King's MMA. Although I wasn't excessively worried about my brain health, I was concerned enough to implement some recommendations I found online. I began playing brain games on Luminosity and a couple other platforms, my scores in the top percentiles assuring me I was fine. The other big takeaway was the importance of exercise. Not only can regular exercise relieve stress, help with pain, and improve overall well-being, it's also good for the vascular system in your brain. Fortunately, I was motivated to continue training jiu-jitsu and practicing yoga, feeling fit at the lightest weight I'd been since high school at 208 pounds. In 2015, I participated in the professional fighter study at the Cleveland Clinic Lou Ruvo Center for Brain Health in Las Vegas, Nevada. Filling out the paperwork about my past was depressing, but I felt better after undergoing a battery of tests, blood work, and an MRI. The head of the program, Dr. Charles Burnick, assured me I was doing what I should to postpone or prevent a decline. On top of the exercise and better sleep, this included practicing guitar and learning German, activities that stimulate the brain. In 2018, I added Wim Hof-inspired breathing and cold water therapy to my routine, cleaned up my diet, and improved my sleep. I also began seeing a therapist, aware that cognitive therapy could rewire the brain and help me figure out why I had always been so dark and full of self-hate. I also wanted an unbiased person who could assess me and my personality and then monitor how I responded to the different types of treatments. But the real motivation for going was that my marriage needed it. The therapist helped me see the ways I was failing as a spouse and how to address issues that needed resolving. It also shed light on my perfectionism and low self-esteem. Therapy seemed to reduce my overall anger and anxiety but it was still there. During this time, I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast, number 1056, with Dr. Mark Gordon of the Millennium Neuroregenerative Centers. Dr. Gordon described what happens when a traumatic brain injury occurs and dispelled many of the myths surrounding them. Most people assume in order to have a TBI, the individual needs to be knocked unconscious or have a very significant blow to the head. But Dr. Gordon explained the process could be started much more easily, even with a minor car accident or ride on a roller coaster. Once the injury occurs, the brain becomes inflamed and this inflammation expands and disrupts the brain's ability to self-regulate hormones. Dr. Gordon explained that many symptoms of PTSD and TBI overlap, such as depression, anxiety, irritability, cognitive deficits, insomnia, and fatigue. In Dr. Gordon's opinion, PTSD is a manifestation of a TBI. Head injuries are often forgotten but commonly identified during detailed patient histories. His approach is to treat patients with hormone replacement therapy to reduce the injury-provoked inflammation in the brain that has compromised functioning. At the time, he claimed to have turned around the lives of over 1,500 military personnel. Although I didn't believe I needed the protocol, I talked it over with my wife, and we agreed the cost of the program would be worth trying. Even if it didn't do anything for me, I could write about it in my book on TBI and CTE. Dr. Allison Gordon went over my blood work results with me, pointing out the ways they were consistent with someone who had TBIs. She recommended several supplements and one prescription of a natural testosterone booster to bring my hormones to normal levels. I wasn't expecting much change because I felt fine, but two weeks after being on the protocol, I broke down crying in my backyard. Not due to anything being wrong, but because it was the first time I fully realized just how terrible my symptoms had been. Not having the weight of the incredibly high levels of anger, depression, and irritability was overwhelming. 
Another two weeks on the protocol and I felt as if I was in the best emotional place I'd ever been with the mental clarity I'd been lacking. I got through the rest of the year and half of 2019 before hitting the proverbial wall of emotion when I realized that despite the improvements in the functional and emotional areas, I had a long way to go. I dusted off the notes for the brain book, hoping someone from my list of experts I wanted to interview would point me in the right direction. I contacted a few people and set up interviews, only to cancel them because the depression still had a hold of me, and I desperately wanted to distance myself from the subject. Fortunately, my sister sent me an email about the amazing results her son was having with... Fortunately, my sister sent me an email about the amazing results her son was having with neurofeedback and a specialized form of chiropractic that focuses on the upper cervical area. He'd been dealing with post-concussion syndrome for quite some time and seemed to have turned things around at Vital Head and Spine in Pasadena. Just as I had with Dr. Gordon's protocol, I discussed the treatment with my wife, weighing the cost versus rewards. We both somehow still believed I was fine and didn't really need it, but agreed I should at least see if the testing showed anything critical. On the NUCA, National Upper Cervical Chiropractic Association, side of the practice, x-rays revealed small but significant shift of the two bony rings, vertebrae, at the base of my skull. This was affecting blood flow and cerebrospinal fluid in and out of my brain. It was also causing my brain to get distorted messages from the sensors, called mechanoreceptors, in my muscles and joints, which was affecting my sense of balance and coordination. On the brain training side of things, led by Dr. Giancarlo Lecara, the results were sobering. Despite my ability to test high on brain games and such, the Integrated Visual and Auditory IVA2 test had me pegged as ADHD and ADD. My auditory score is nearly half those of a normal man my age. Even scarier was seeing the prevalent dark blue of my frontal lobe QEEG, quantitative electroencephalography, images which illustrated severely underfunctioning areas of my brain. Not only was this compromising my executive functioning, it was also affecting my higher brain center's ability to regulate my lower emotional centers. In addition, we could also see how my brain was trying to adapt to chronic poor sleep, also probably caused by my past concussions. After seeing these results, the cost of the program wasn't a factor. If I could improve my diminished brain function, I was obligated to my family to try. Although I didn't feel any significant changes immediately after the NUCA adjustments, I soon began feeling better overall, and my low back problem largely went away thanks to the improved signals from my brain balancing my body. On the neurofeedback side, I noticed feeling better after just a couple of sessions. Both my sleep and overall stress reaction were much improved. By my second week, I was so convinced it was working that I had my wife and daughter begin their own treatment protocols. Just ten sessions in, I was telling anyone who would listen just how much this training had already improved my life. After twenty sessions, I retook the IVA test and remapped my brain. My results were encouraging, no longer triggering for ADHD and revealing noticeable improvement in many areas. During the review, Dr. Lakata also helped ease one of my fears. I told him I was afraid that even though I was feeling better, what if it was just a temporary fix and I would develop CTE or some form of dementia anyway? He said we know enough about the mechanisms of the disease to feel confident it shouldn't develop. A big part of this is due to the improvement of deep sleep, which is of critical importance as this is where our body removes waste like tau and beta amyloid that wreak havoc in neurodegenerative diseases like CTE and Alzheimer's. I was also treating an overall inflammation with diet and supplements to avoid continually causing new damage. I just completed my 40th session and couldn't be happier with the results of my final retesting. Now my scores are higher than normal, and I no longer test for ADHD or ADD. Although the training does come with a considerable price tag, I've already begun another phase that will focus on emotional regulation and strengthening the areas we've already improved. 
I still have other treatments to explore and experts to interview, but I am feeling much more hopeful now than I was at any other point of this process. By treating the functional, emotional, and structural areas, I have attained a much healthier, happier, and safer place in my life. I believe I have significantly lowered the odds that I will develop CTE or another form of dementia. It has cost quite a bit of time and money, but it's a small price to pay when considering my overall health and happiness and the well-being of my family.